Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Veronique Bunyon, a scientist, entrepreneur, and energy industry leader. She is a climate physicist by training and spent a number of years in the private sector focusing on energy and carbon markets. Today, Veronique is currently co-founder and CEO of Clearly Energy, a provider of innovative solutions to reduce building emissions. She's also an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University, where she teaches courses on climate finance and climate risk. Veronique's expertise in reducing building emissions makes her an excellent guest to talk with me about federal building performance standards. The Biden administration announced on May 17th that the Council on Environmental Quality would be leading an effort to develop such a policy for federal buildings. And Veronique is joining me today to shed light on how such standards could be designed, what impact they're likely to have, and what the federal government can learn from other jurisdictions that have put building performance standards in place. Stay with us. Veronique, it is great to talk with you today, and thank you so much for coming on Resources Radio. Hey, hi, Kristen. It's a pleasure being here today. Great, great. Well, uh, let's start with some introductions. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? And I'm particularly curious about what drew you to eventually focusing on reducing emissions from the building sector in particular. Um, yeah, I guess my background is obviously a little bit of a mix between science, policy, business, and economics. Um, I guess I, I like to get involved in, in new and, and innovative policy approaches to sort of tough climate issues. Um, and buildings are interesting because they are a really tough nut to crack. Um, there's over 110 million residential homes in the U.S. There's 6 million commercial buildings, and about two-thirds of those use fossil fuels for heating. And so even if we're successful in cleaning up the electricity supply with renewable electricity and reducing the emissions associated with things like air conditioning and computers and lights, we're still stuck with, you know, heating, water heating, cooking emissions. Um, and, and I think that's going to be a really tough slog because the equipment has a long lifetime. Nobody really cares, right? There's no equivalent to sort of, there's no sort of Tesla sex appeal to one water heater over another. Um, you know, solar roofs maybe, but, but not so much for, for the equipment that's in the basement. And so it's, it's a really tricky problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'm always impressed when people are drawn to problems that are tricky. So <laughs> I'm glad to hear that that's what, what drew you to working on this particular issue. Um, so let's talk about today's topic of federal building performance standards. And I'd like to start by reading just a bit from the Biden administration's uh, announcement, as I mentioned, made on May 17th of this year, in which they noted that the CEQ, that is the Council on Environmental Quality, is launching an interagency federal sustainability effort with the GSA, DOE, and EPA to develop the first ever building performance standards, or BPS, for the federal government. The BPS will establish metrics, targets, and tracking methods to reach federal carbon emissions goals. The performance standards will identify progressive performance milestones, as well as the resources that agencies need to meet them. So sorry for that long intro, um, but I wanted to read that because there are, in fact, I think a number of terms that are useful to define in there. And so let me start with the basics. What is a building performance standard <laughs> and and how does it compare to you know other policies or techniques that might help reduce emissions from the building sector? 
Yeah, so right now, if you think of building energy efficiency programs, the odds are you're probably thinking of appliance standards, which are great, um, or you may be thinking of incentive programs. Um, but if we look at like commercial building emissions over the past 30 years, they're, they're pretty flat, which isn't great. It's not bad because it's obviously a mix of improved efficiency and more square footage and, and more buildings. Um, but we still haven't had great success. Um, and so the idea behind building performance standards is simply to tell building owners, here's the target, um, go and meet it. Um, and by the way, the target will get more stringent every couple of years. So kind of a very basic sort of kind of carbon markety, you know, approach to, to things. Um, and the target metric itself can be, it can be energy consumption per square foot of building space, can be emissions per square foot, um, could be emissions per building. And the, the targets can go all the way out to 2050 and say that, hey, by 2050, by the way, we expect buildings to be, for example, net zero emissions. Um, but what's really interesting about building performance standards is that they can be designed kind of on a spectrum, if you want, from plain vanilla to markets. Um, so plain vanilla is sort of every building has to meet the target. And the target can be, you know, by type of building. It doesn't need to be, you know, one target for all buildings because hospitals might have a different type of footprint from, say, office buildings. Um, it could be a hybrid approach, which we have a couple cases of where groups of buildings together have to meet the target. And those groups can be, you know, university or hospital campuses, but could also be all of the buildings owned by a corporate owner. Um, or it could be um, a market. So New York City is studying trading for um, for its its building performance program. So essentially turning it into a market, and that would allow one or both of the following mechanisms. So it could allow buildings that over comply to put the excess in a piggy bank to use for later, which is kind of a positive because it incentivizes kind of you know early deep compliance. Um, but it could also allow buildings to trade, which would mean that the buildings that are most efficient or that are over-complying could sell that excess to those that are under-complying. And, and the goal of the flexibility is, is to allow buildings to deal with different, you know, they might be dealing with different financing timelines, with tenant constraints, with equipment renewal time. So there's a lot of reasons to kind of build in flexibility into a basic building performance um, approach. Hmm, fascinating. Okay. So you mentioned New York State. Um, and I, so I guess I wanted to circle back to sort of where this already exists. And, and the, the Biden administration in its announcement, I think, characterized their, um, their initiative as leading by example. And I, I think it's, there, there is a potential for the impression that they're really ahead of the curve. You know, this leading by example indicates they're ahead of the curve in implementing this type of standard. Um, so is that is that right? Where are there other building performance standards currently in place already? So there are a couple examples um, in the U.S. Um, and around the world. Um, but I think it's also fair to say that, that anybody putting together, 
you know, building performance standard now is still, there's still a lot to figure out. Um, what's interesting in, in the designs we have across the U.S. is that they're, they're all different. And so there's no, there's no one design that, that has yet emerged as, as the way to, to design a building performance standard. Um, so what we have in the U.S. is the DC BEPS program or building energy performance standard, which is, has started and it, sets uh it, it's interesting it sets a, a kind of an energy star score target so a whole building energy star score to sort of break the buildings into those that meet the target and those that have to go through either consumption reductions or kind of an approved list of efficiency improvements um new york city has um local law 97 um and their program is in greenhouse gas reduction units um, St. Louis has a program in energy units, so energy consumption targets. Um, and Reno might be my favorite because they are targeting both water and energy um, reductions kind of at once in, in their program. Um, so that's the cities. And then we have two states that have passed um, building performance standard enabling kind of legislation. That's Washington and Colorado. And then um, a number of cities that are working on it. And so that includes Boston, Cambridge, Montgomery County um, in in Maryland, and probably others, which I apologize for. <laughs> <laughs> we, will, we will not slight anyone who is working on one. We will. <laughs> yeah, okay. So th- this, is, this actually does spark a follow-up question for me, though. As a resident of the District of Columbia, I do feel like I probably should have been more aware of this particular policy. And, you know, one thing that I would think about the the federal buildings is that they are in fact all office space. I don't think I don't think that there's anyone living in federal office buildings, but for for these other cities which are dealing with both kind of commercial buildings and residential buildings, um, am I right that the building performance standard could cover all of those types or none of those types? And and how are the jurisdictions? dealing with that differentiation. It seems to me that those would require very different types of education, outreach, engagement. I'm just curious about that that difference. Yeah, and I probably should have clarified that at the outset in that, you know, building performance standards are really only a tool for large commercial buildings. And generally speaking, they are designed to bring in the largest buildings first, kind of gradually working their way down to to smaller buildings. Um, Because there is a somewhat onerous reporting requirement that goes along with a building report, you know, performance standard, you need to know what the building consumes in order to calculate calculate um, reductions. So it's really um, commercial buildings um, and the largest commercial buildings. But if you think of the the consumption in greenhouse gas footprints in cities, um, depending on the city, it's it's anywhere from 60 to 80 percent of the total greenhouse gas footprint of, of a city is buildings. And so, so that's kind of why cities are out there first. It's because it's pretty obvious to them that if they are setting citywide greenhouse gas goals, they're going to have to target um, the emissions from or the consumption from from their largest buildings. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you for that for that clarification. Um, right. Okay. So another another piece of the announcement that I wanted to just spend a tiny bit of time on uh, is the fact that it mentions a number of federal agencies by name or by acronym at least, including the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Energy, and the General Services Administration, which my understanding is that that's the government agency that really is kind of primarily responsible for the 
the physical infrastructure of the federal government, of course, and that's alongside the Council on Environmental Quality, which is the organizing entity. So that's a lot of agencies. Um, certainly, there was no shortage of sort of interagency cooperation across the federal government. But I want to just ask, what is that? What is that number of players, or what is that diversity of players? Tell us about the expertise that might be needed to develop a really robust standard for the federal government buildings. So yeah, it's it's obviously a complicated landscape because um, the federal government owns buildings, but it also leases buildings. Some are managed by GSA, the General Services Administration, but some are managed by the agencies directly. Um, and the Department of Defense is obviously going to be a, a big chunk of the puzzle, but we don't necessarily have their data up, up front. So, but what's really new and different about a federal building performance standard, which has not been explored yet, is that it's a big country. Um, and so that means that weather and consumption characteristics are different in different parts of the country. So if you think of, and it's funny that you said, you know, federal buildings, office buildings, it's like there's post offices, there's there's tens yeah, of thousands of, <laughs> there's tens of thousands right. of post offices in the mix. There are government labs. There are right, lots of different right. types of buildings. Um, but yeah, a post office in Minnesota is going to worry about heating in the winter, while a post office in Arizona is probably going to be worrying about air conditioning in the summer. So quite different things. Um, and so one way around that is to do what, what Tokyo kind of started, which is, and what a couple jurisdictions in the U.S. are looking to, to follow, and that's to set building-specific starting points. So instead of trying to say, well, there's 12 categories of buildings and eight climate zones, and therefore we're going to set 100 and I don't know how many different standards, is to say every building gets its baseline, its starting point. You use recent data, though probably not 2020 or 2021 data. Um, and then you tell every building, here's your starting point. Now go knock off 10% every five years or, or 20% or, or whatever the, the time scale, the timeline might be. Um, and, and I think that that's probably a, you know, a good way, a good approach for, for, for something like the federal administration, which has such a complex landscape of, of buildings. And, you know, and if it seems unfair to the most efficient buildings, which have already done a lot of work, then you kind of exempt them from the first compliance period or two. And, and that's kind of easy enough um, as well. Is that also something where the kind of flexibility mechanisms that you mentioned at the beginning could actually, if those were built in in some fashion in a federal building performance standard, that they could actually reward the folks who had been ahead of the curve? Or is that flexibility not as compatible with this kind of building by building benchmarking that you mentioned? No, it, it absolutely is. Um, and I think in particular for something like the federal administration, which it's, those are big portfolios of buildings. I mean, we're talking, we're talking, we're, you're talking a billion square feet. It, it's not even, it's even hard to wrap your head around it. Um, so I think, you know, what we've learned is from an energy saving standpoint, it's better to kind of go all in rather than to do onesie, twosie kind of things, change the lights one year and change the windows another year. And so if the program, if a federal program is designed to let agencies or even agencies at a regional level kind of optimize how they're going to tackle the program, giving them flexibility to precisely do that, you know, some buildings might overcomply 
supply and some might need a few years because, well, the heating equipment is still relatively new. Um, that seems to make a lot of sense in that, in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, so another thing that you've mentioned a couple of times that I, I wanted to ask a question about is the, the importance of starting with good baseline data. Um, sounds like that's really kind of a critical foundational block for any of, a, any of these building performance standards. And so how would you characterize where the federal government is now in terms of having that good starting data? Um, I will be the first to admit that I wasn't really thinking about all of the types of federal buildings that could fall under this mandate. And you're right, that's a huge number of buildings, some of which are, I'm sure, um, I, I'm sure this would be kind of a new a new introduction, not necessarily data that they've been collecting to date. So are there other steps that the federal government would really need to take just in order to establish that baseline data and then from there to establish these metrics and targets and tracking methods? So the the good news is the federal government has data, which is a start. <laughs> so there are actually requirements for the largest federal buildings to report Um, their consumption, their energy consumption annually, and even for buildings to be audited every couple of years. So there's actually a trove of the data out there, though it it definitely does need probably some some tidying up. Um, So what's interesting is federal buildings actually had um, energy efficiency improvement goals. Their target was 30% by 2015, and they actually got to about 25% improvements, but those targets have now lapsed. Um, and not been renewed. renewed. Um, so what the data does tell us, and, and that's kind of, I think, a really you know, good and helpful starting point, is that there are relatively few very, very big buildings which are really, really big consumers of energy. And that means those are the ones to start with. Because the overall data is not perfect, but if you're going to scrub data, then it's easier to, to start with a subset of buildings um, and then gradually kind of improve reporting requirements and systems to bring in um, smaller buildings over time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, something else that's been on my mind is um, I know sometimes it can be difficult to have enough longevity of these policies and, and potentially access to data to really understand how successful they've been. Sounds like in the federal government sense, um, there is actually enough data to know at least how the previous energy efficiency standards work. But what what do we know about the success of the building performance standards that have been implemented in other jurisdictions? Um, do we have enough of a track record to be able to draw conclusions? And are there ways that the federal government could potentially learn from those experiences, make modifications, and really kind of maximize their chances for success? Yeah, that's that, that's a great question. So the only place where we really have a, a long track record is Tokyo. So when when we talk, and maybe a few cities in, in China, which included buildings and their carbon markets, um, but when we talk about the Tokyo carbon market, it's really a building performance standard for the largest buildings in Tokyo, which happens to allow trading, and that's what makes it a carbon market. Um, and so the Tokyo program started in 2010, and by 2018, so in eight years, um, the buildings had reported 27% lower emissions. So 27% is actually also their 2025 goal, which means the buildings are pretty far ahead of the targets, or the targets could become more stringent faster. Um, but what, what's important to note is that essentially all the buildings are complying, 
Um, and, you know, in knocking down a quarter of emissions in eight years, even if there was some, some low-hanging fruit in there, is, is pretty good. And the program is, is complex. It collects a lot of data, which means we know pretty well how buildings are reducing their consumption. And it's, it's a good mix of what's happening inside the building, um, you know, optimize anything from systems to optimize lighting and heating, cooling, timing to, you know, to brand new systems um, and heat pumps type of solutions to purchases, external purchases of renewable electricity. And the Tokyo program has really interesting kind of flexibility mechanisms. So it allows buildings from outside the region to kind of voluntarily opt in. It allows smaller buildings to opt in. It allows building to purchase um, renewable energy to kind of knock off their their emissions. So it, it does kind of offer us a number of lessons. But um, but but it it you know it has a a good track record. If if any criticisms are levied against it, is that it's it's kind of the typical issue of carbon markets that are doing too well in that, oh, well, buildings are over-complying, and so we're building up this big oversupply or, or bank um, of kind of, you know, banked up reductions that, that buildings can use later. But my view on that is, you know, so what? The track record to date is is pretty good, and, and that means that, that, that they can go more stringent down the road. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why, out of curiosity, why would a small building opt into a system like that? Um. Probably two reasons. I mean, one might be, you know, kind of the the altruistic view of this puts me in a program, this puts me on a path um, that I want to be on. And the other is, well, I'm actually an efficient building. (laughs) So if the building allows flexibility, for example, if the building is part of a portfolio of lesser efficient buildings, um, that allows a portfolio owner to kind of even things out or it allows the building to kind of sell its excess into the into the marketplace. Mhm. Great. I I also wanted to ask, you know, the more I hear you sort of describe the types of data that need to be collected, the types of solutions that are being implemented in places like Tokyo, it seems to me that there's a tremendous amount of of relatively new and feel free to correct me if this is not the case, but relatively new expertise that is that really would come into play in helping make something like this successful. So, you know, people who really understand on, on a fairly deep level where the opportunities for these types of reductions are. Um, so I guess I did want to ask, is that, you know, is that really the case? Does this require, does the successful implementation of a building performance standard of this scale really require some new industries to kind of grow around it? Um, and if so, do we have those industries? Or is this really kind of a, an opportunity for, you know, for job creation as well? I guess that's my my question. <laughs> um, it's, it's a really interesting space because, you know, on the one hand, you have, you know, building engineers or even building modeling that say, well, you know, you can do X, Y, Z, and that'll reduce consumptions by by so much. Um, and and that space historically hasn't really overlapped with kind of policymakers who who design programs, especially ones with compliance flexibility. Because you really have to start looking at this if you have, a, say, a portfolio of buildings. Say you are your, you know. Howard University campus in in DC, and I'm not sure how many buildings they have, but but definitely several. Um, it becomes a complicated puzzle um, to figure out what to do 
on what building in what timeline in order to comply with the overall um, DC BEPS program. So I think there's going to have a there, as you said, I mean this is this is new. There's going to have to be a lot of innovation, a lot of thinking about how to bring together this sort of engineering approach with the the the, the policy requirements um, to you know to help buildings comply kind of effectively, efficiently, cost effectively. Um, I think that's partly what makes these programs quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, fascinating. I will be very interested to see how this how this evolves at the federal level. Um, and and so as the team is is putting together these standards for the federal government, I guess I want to close by asking if if you, as someone who has looked at these programs in a fair amount of detail, if you could offer them one piece of advice, what would it be? Um, I guess I'd offer them one and a half pieces of advice. No, the the first would be, um, because it's the federal government, would be provide transparency, tons and tons of transparency. Like if the public can track building data across time and see the improvements, see which buildings are lagging, I think that will help um, with the credibility. Um, but I think from I think the federal administration is in a unique position to innovate. I mean, it will have to because it's the only it's it, it would be the first kind of broad geographic building performance standard anyway. But I think it can innovate in particular when it comes to smart buildings. Um, so if you think of big commercial buildings, they, they are big energy consumers. And if we can design programs then incentivize buildings to move consumption from, say, higher emissions hours to lower emissions hours, right, as far as grid emissions go. And then they can really kind of help improve grid operations and help improve kind of the overall system. And so I think there are ways to kind of, you know, build that into a federal building performance standard that would be unique um, and and to kind of play around and experiment with that as part of, uh, of a federal program. Fantastic. All right. Well, I hope that they're all listening. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and I certainly am sure that, that, you know, every good piece of advice that they get is much appreciated as they put together, as you say, kind of a very, very complex, but also potentially very impactful new policy. So we'll see what happens. Well, thank you so much for this, for sort of sharing this all with our audience and, and really helping ground us all in um, in what this means and explaining a lot of the, the details and opportunities. So I'll close with our regular feature, Top of the Stack. Um, and I'd love to ask you for your recommendations on good content, uh, whether on this topic or, again, just something of interest to you that you'd like to share with our with our listening audience. So Veronique, what's, what's on the top of your stack? Well, I will admit that I mostly read, you know, <laughs> policy and climate policy papers. Um, but um, my top of the stack is a new book called um, Icebound by Andrea Pitzer, um, which has an awesome cover of a polar bear. Um, and um, my husband and I met doing climate fieldwork in the Arctic. And so we like to dig up books about kind of Arctic and Antarctic explorers. And so Icebound is the adventures of William Barents at the and kind of the end of the 16th century, so a fair while ago, um, you know, Barents Sea, that's, that's named after him. And so his curse was too much ice all the time, um, but it's an amazing survival story. Um, and it's kind of, an, in a weird kind of way, a refreshing counterpoint to sort of today's world of, of drought and, and wildfire, right? It's been a while since, since people worried about, about 
too much ice and, and their explorations being thwarted <laughs> over and over again by too much ice. Right, right. Okay. Well, uh, thank you. I imagine we'll have a number of listeners who would be intrigued by that. So that's great. Well, Veronique, thanks again. It's been a pleasure to talk with you and I look forward to hearing more about your work in the future. Thank you, Kristen. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.